Today on the podcast, we're having a conversation about creativity, one of my absolute favorite topics. Now, many people think that creativity is reserved for a few brilliant people, but my guest on the podcast today is author Tim Duggan, and he says that everyone is creative. And in his words, stuff anyone who says otherwise. At the time of recording, Tim was coming to me from the Greek islands, and we took some time to have a chat all about creativity and the future of work. Joining me on the phone is Tim Duggan. Tim is an author and new media entrepreneur. He's co-founded several digital media ventures, most notably Junkie Media, one of the leading publishers for Australian millennials that was acquired by the ASX-listed O-Media. Under Tim's leadership, Junkie's content agency ran the social media accounts for leading brands like Netflix, ANZ, American Express, Westpac, and more. Tim's first book, Cult Status, How to Build a Business People Adore, was named the best entrepreneurship book at the 2021 Australian Business Book Awards. His second book, Killer Thinking, How to Turn Good Ideas into Brilliant Ones, explores creativity in the workplace. Tim serves as the chairman of the Digital Publishers Alliance, an industry body that represents over 100 titles from leading independent digital publishers, and is currently writing his third book on the future of work. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Tim, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thanks, Shane. It's awesome to be here. I stumbled across your work a little while ago, probably only a couple of months ago when you had just released your latest book. And I was saying to you before, it feels a bit like when you're going to buy a car and you've never seen that car on the road and all of a sudden someone tells you about the car and you can't stop seeing it absolutely everywhere. Your name just constantly appears on my radar absolutely everywhere I go. Are you doing anything exceptional right now or is it just like one of those things like buying a car? Well, first up, apologies if I keep taking over your feed or you keep seeing my name in places. Um, I think I'm just on the book promotional trail um, over the past three months or so since my second book, Killer Thinking, came out. Um, And as you would know, Shane, that means that you try and annoy people as much as possible by getting your face in front of them in as many different places as possible so that they potentially consider buying your book. Um, So no, haven't done anything (laughs) differently. Here's, here's the exception to the rule, is which is when I'm buying a car, the no, I want nothing less than to see it showing up in my feed. Yet with you, I want nothing more than your content show, showing up in my feed or showing up in a bookstore because you, you're an excellent thinker. And I feel like um, from reading your book and having prepared for this, I was like, it's one of those moments where I was like, I wish I had kind of discovered a lot of your work sooner. It would have saved me a lot of heartache, especially in the area of creativity and ideation um, and looking forward to chatting through about that with you. Yeah, awesome. And and straight back at you, I think your book and my book kind of came out at very similar times. And so every time I went into a bookstore, I would always see your book um, in a similar space to mine. And that's just a wonderful feeling because I know how, how much hard work goes into getting one of these things onto the shelves. Um, so it's lovely to be able to sit down and chat with you. All right. So let's jump into the conversation. Before we do, I want to just ask you three quick fast facts. Number one, where were you born? Number two, what was your very first job? And number three, what do you do now? Awesome. So I was born in Sydney and lived in Sydney for almost all of my life, except where I am now. We've recently moved to Europe. 
Um, and I'm coming to you live from a very small island in the very far east of the Greek islands called Castel Laurizio. Um, and so that is very lovely to be outside of Sydney. I adore Sydney. It's, it's kind of my home and my family are there, but it's also lovely after 41 years to fly the coop. Um, and that's a, the whole story on how I was able to going to do that by selling my business and um, you know, marrying a Scottish man. Um, the second question was my first job was in the mail room of an advertising agency straight from school. I was really obsessed by marketing and advertising and creativity. And I didn't want to just get on the normal conveyor belt of getting straight from school and going to university and then starting a graduate job and so on and so, so forth. So at 18, I left school and went straight into the mailroom. And it was the best job I think I ever had. I literally would go around handing out mail, which sounds strange, but this was the day, this was, you know, year 1999 or 2000 was going to when I did that and handing out mail to people and I get got a chance to just sit down with creatives and with account service people and with finance people and kind of figure out what I love and what I didn't love at the tender age of 18, 19, 20. So I loved that job. Um, and right now I have... Various titles. I think the, the <laughs> title that I put first is generally author because I love writing. I kind of went from advertising agencies into journalism in my early 20s. And then I ended up starting a company called Junkie Media and we ended up employing 60, 70 full-time people. So I actually didn't have time to do much writing. But towards the end of my junkie life, I started to write and reconnect with that passion so I wrote my first book, Cult Status, um, and published it in 2020. And my second book was called Killer Thinking. And then now I'm working on my third book. So I do a bunch of things, but I think author is probably the thing that I love the most and thing I identify most with. That's amazing. Look, I, I want to go back to the little island off the off the coast in, in Greek, Greek islands. Look... I'm sitting here in a hoodie in Melbourne, freezing cold weather right now. So I'm, I, it, as you said that, I wanted to just disconnect the podcast, which I, I didn't do because obviously it's going to be a really great conversation. Um, the second thing was, um, I think it's, it's fascinating that there was an interest for you in in kind of writing relatively early on in your career, based on kind of what I've understood about you. What initially piqued that interest in writing? I had a really great English teacher at school who kind of opened up my young impressionable mind to some really great writing and then when I was it was kind of a self-serving thing when I was about 19 or 20 um, I watched the movie Almost Famous and I saw that kid go on tour with bands and write about music and I was like that's something that I want to do so I started writing for you know local street press magazines and doing bar reviews and then I had my sights set on Rolling Stone. And so I harassed, annoyed, um, you know, just kept on writing to the editor of Rolling Stone at the time and said, hi, I want to write for you. I want to write for you. And, you know, I wasn't a writer, but, but my kind of like view on this, which is actually something that I've come to develop over time, is that every single person is creative. And if a writer is someone who writes, a painter is someone who paints. You don't need to be any good at it. You just need to do it. So I said, well, I want, I'm a writer. Why not? And after a few months of harassing the editor of Rolling Stone, she eventually gave me like a 50-word album review to do. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever written a review or done something that for 50 words, it's actually really, really hard to take something that, yeah, I wrote thousands of words and had to crystallize them down into 50. And obviously I handed it back and like any single person who hands anything creative in, you send it off and you think, this is the worst thing in the world. I'm going to get found out as a fraud. Nobody's going to read this. What the hell am I doing? And that, you know, that's kind of what I thought. Um, and then a few you know days later, she'd email back and she's like, hey, that was pretty good. Do you want to do another review? This time make it 75 words and 100 words. And before I knew it, I was writing, you know, thousands of words, feature stories for Rolling Stone Australia. And that's kind of where my love and passion for writing began. Uh, One of the things that I I really admire about your writing style is that it's got really great storytelling in the way that you write. But more than that, it's also really pragmatic. And as someone else who, I guess my top strengths are ideation and very much in thinking and, and I typically describe myself in my bio as a, as curious by nature and a creative at heart. And so one of the things that I often find that I would get boxed into or grouped into is this creative that has, you know, lots of really abstract conceptual ideas, but can't necessarily make them pragmatic or practical. And I feel like you take something which tends to be grouping people as a not very pragmatic, but yet you make the creative process really practical for people um, in the way that you write. Now, I'm curious to understand, like, in terms of the creative process, do you think it can be practical or is it always just, you know, what it's grouped as this kind of abstract process? I think the biggest myth about creativity is that it's this mystical process that you need to tune into at 2 a.m. in the morning when an idea is going to just come down from heaven and strike you and all of a sudden you're going to solve that problem. And that's such bullshit. That is bullshit that's being fed to us by people that don't want us to be creative. And like anything in life, creativity is a skill that you can learn, that you can master. In fact, you have to master it. You can't just think one day you're going to start coming up with brilliant ideas. You need to come up with 10,000 shitty ones to come up with a really brilliant idea. And anyone who's creative says that. Anyone from Jerry Seinfeld, who kind of talks about his creativity through to Ed Sheeran, one of the greatest songwriters of our modern generation, he has this really great analogy that he calls the leaky tap and or dirty tap. Um, And his dirty tap analogy is when you turn a tap on in, he's obviously thinking of a pretty dirty um, house, the water when it first comes out is going to be dirty and murky and a little bit brown. And you kind of just have to keep the tap going in order for the clear water to come out. And he talks about creativity in that same way, is that you just need to kind of like get the shit out, get the dirty water out before the clear stuff's going to go. And so I think, therefore, to answer your question, it is a completely a process because how you get from those the dirty water to the really clear, amazing ideas the other end, that is a process that anyone can follow. Yeah, I love that. One of the things that I often say to people is that, it, from my perspective, the two misconceptions around ideas is that ideas are for somebody, meaning that they're for exceptionally talented people or the kind of anomaly people and that they're a moment in time. And so we have this idea, it's, which is essentially that this creative moment is a genius that gets this epiphany sitting on the toilet or under a tree. And we go, well, I need to try and recreate 
that moment or I need to be that kind of person. And what I love about what you see and what you talk about in your book is that creativity is not just somebody, but it's for everybody. And it's not just a moment, but it's a series of moments that build upon one another and can be taken from something which is good to obviously what your book was about, which is killer, um, you know, killer thinking and ideas and, and, and killer ideas. And so I, I actually love that about the way that you write. I'm, I'm curious to know of the topic of creativity, why did you choose to go down that path in terms to write about, especially for this latest book? It was something that has always been there and I've always been fascinated by. So whether it was from straight out of school into the creative ad agencies and figuring out kind of how they view creativity. And then even when I was running Junkie Media, we had a separate agency essentially called Junkie Studio. And that was a creative and social content agency for some of the biggest brands in the world. So we did all of the social media for Netflix, Australia and New Zealand. So every Netflix account that you see for Instagram and Facebook and Twitter was all done in-house by our team. And we did the same for Westpac and for American Express and a bunch of work with Qantas. And so I just had worked with all of these big brands. And then also when I was running Junkie, we did ad campaigns and, and you know a lot of work for thousands of clients over the 15 years. And therefore, I have had to sit through hundreds of brainstorms. I've had to run hundreds of them, potentially thousands. I tried to, when I was writing the book, I was trying to like at one stage figure out how many brainstorms and just actually hurt my brain um, thinking what, how many had been. So therefore, I'd seen the good side when you come up with something good. I'd seen the really ugly side of brainstorming and coming up with ideas and creativity. And I think something I've realized as I write this, now I'm writing this third book and I've written the first two books, is that I love trying to help other people not have as shit a time as I did at some of these things. So my first book, Cult Status, was about how to start a business um, and particularly how to build a really strong community around your business. And that's because I learned the hard way how to not do that. Like I, I, we almost lost the business many times. We kind of, you know, had so many problems and heartaches along the way. So I wanted to try and help people get better at that. And so the same thing, I think, with creativity, it just felt like this big, giant knot of unknowns that I'm trying to help some people untie it a little bit so that they can get better at it. Mm. And based on, I'm sure, people's experience who are listening to this right now who've had the opportunity to sit through many a horrible brainstorming sessions where a manager said, hey, we need you to come and uh, solve a problem. We'll tell you about the problem when we get in the room and then we'll expect a solution to that problem within 45 minutes so we can be out for lunch. Um, so for the people who have experienced that, I think that's potentially quite triggering for a lot of people. Um, you 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 have a solution to that, which I, I really love and I'd love to talk about in a second, which is now I might be pronouncing it wrong. Is it cerebration or is it cerebration? Uh, <laughs> Cerebration. It's like celebration with an R. Cerebration. Oh, okay. So I wasn't sure. I had like cerebral, like the mind kind of thing. And I wasn't sure whether you were playing a word on that. So cerebration, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Before we, before we touch on that quickly, because I think it's a really helpful solution for people. Um, having worked with so many big brands, having worked in, in agency land for a little while and, and built a really successful business in that space, you would have had exposure to so many creative thinkers. And, you know, I mean even organizations, uh, if you could kind of say it's a creative organization, but what were you think, did you notice were some of the key mistakes that people made when it came to thinking about something in a more creative way? 
Yeah, there's lots of key mistakes that people make. I think I think the first mistake is a mindset thing of, of trying to outsource creativity to just someone that has create creative in their title. Because that's yeah. no good for anyone. It's no good for the creative person who gets overloaded with, oh, we need an idea. Creative director, come over here, give us an idea. And that happens in an organization, you know, 10 times a day. And that person just gets, oh, they, their creativity gets tapped out. I think that's a, a, one of the biggest problems is kind of trying to outsource it to people, to a department. Whereas I think the biggest opportunity is if you can actually activate the creativity inside everybody. And I mean, take the, fi- the financial assistant, bring them into the room, take the person who answers the phones, bring them into the room, take the person who is the intern who just turned up and bring them into the room. If you can actually access and activate the creativity of all of those people, the potential is unlimited. And that's about a mindset, about letting everyone know they're creative. It's about a... Um, removing any of the kind of like the limitations and making a place psychologically safe for people to come up with ideas. And then thirdly, it's just about having a process and some really simple tools on how you can, you know, enable and engage anybody to come up with ideas. And that's how you become a really creative organization. Yeah. I love that. Last, uh, last season I had, um, Franz Johansson, who wrote The Medici Effect, um, which is a great book on on ideas and creativity. And his whole philosophy of the work that he does is that our best ideas come at the intersection of disciplines, which is really our best ideas come out when we bring people who have very different perspectives who come together and we allow them the space to be able to collide those perspectives. And we discover things that we couldn't have been able to discover without having those people in the room. And my experience in the past of creativity and getting creative outcomes has been a brainstorming session where you bring people together you go, let's get all the right people in the room, chuck them in there and go, let's come up with a, a solution to the problem. But your book has a really nice journey that you take people on um, both before the meeting and then during the meeting and afterwards as well. Do you want to kind of maybe just talk me through a little bit about the celebration process? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it really brainstorming is this model that has been around for 80 plus years it's it's you know and it stood the test of time it is a very good model but it's been bastardized and lost like the the skill of how to come up with the with ideas together as a group and particularly in this new hybrid world we're talking about where some people are at home and video conferencing some people are in the office maybe everyone's at home if covid's um you know really flaring up at the time um so i think that those tools that maybe worked in the 1940s do not work anymore in the 2020s. Um, so I spent a few years researching, reading every research paper I could, um, doing a bunch of experiments on companies, big companies, small companies, um, and tried to kind of really, I went through what are the things that are wrong with brainstorms and how can you create a new process that ticks off every single one of those. Um, so an example of that is one of the things I talk about in the book is this concept of hippos. Um, which stands for the highest paid person's opinion, um, which is not a concept that I came up with. It's a concept that I came across that I just love, um, which means that in a brainstorm, generally people tailor their ideas and creativity to what they think the highest paid person's opinion of it is going to be. And that's a really dangerous um, limitation on creativity. 
So looking around, that was one of the, the six limiters of, of the problems with brainstorms. So I went through and I uh, came up with this process. I called it cerebration model, which actually comes from Isaac Asimov, the science fiction writer, um, who came up with this term cerebration in a letter that he wrote to the US government about why he wasn't going to attend one of their brainstorms, but he talked about the best way to make a brainstorm work. Um, and there's three very simple parts to it, and I'll, I'll kind of try and explain it very briefly in a minute or two. And I try to make all of my ideas where I, where I can as memorable as possible. So the whole idea of a cerebration is cerebral plus a celebration coming together. And so I'm using this kind of concept of a party um, as something to try and make it memorable so, so that people can, next time you're having a group ideation session, you can go, what was that dude talking about something to do with the party? And you can remember what those three things are. And so the very the three simple things are blow, blow up your balloons, write out your cards and share the presents. And what I mean by that is blow up your balloons is um, figuring out what is the question that you're trying to answer. Um, and once you figure out what that question is, put it inside a circle. So you kind of put a question inside a circle. It's called blowing up a balloon. Writing out cards is the idea that before you start sharing ideas, you actually need to think individually about your own ideas first. So writing out cards means everyone getting a post-it note or a piece of paper and writing their own ideas out for five minutes, seven minutes, 10 minutes, however long you have as a group. And that part is like, that's the secret source because everyone approaches problems and creativity differently. And everyone, when they write out their ideas, everyone almost has that same feeling I had when I used to hand those Rolling Stone stories in, which is like, oh, I've got some things here, but I don't think they're any good or I'm not super creative or oh, I think I misheard the question or I don't know what he's talking about. And so every time I've done this, you know, as a session with people, I ask people, give me a word on how you're feeling after they've done this kind of individual ideation part. And without question, everyone's like, a bit scared, a um, mm, bit frustrated, mm, not very creative, don't know what it is. And then, only then, should you do what I call share the presence, which is then go around the room. Um, this is if it's a small room. If it's a bigger room, you break it up into groups of kind of five to seven. And you start sharing your ideas with everyone. And a very simple trick to do this, to hopefully stop some of those hippos in the room, is to figure out whose birthday is coming up next. And that is the order that you go around the room and share these ideas. And then you start sharing things. And people might say something and someone else adds another idea on top of it. And then someone else adds something else. And that then is just when this magic happens with people. And it could happen in person, but it could also happen on Zoom because this is a very ordered process that works just as well using video conferencing and does in real life. And it's phenomenal then. I've done this now um, since the book came out kind of dozens of times in real life. Um, and I've had lots of feedback from kind of hundreds of people who have used this process. And when people start sharing their ideas and it feels psychologically safe and you start adding one plus one equals three, this concept of kind of plusing ideas, that is when this real amazing creativity happens and people just start feeling energized and they start feeling excited by ideas they're coming up with. And that's when that's the state you want to get to, but you can only get to that state if you kind of follow those processes. Yeah. And you, you touched on a couple of principles in the book, which I think are really helpful. And one you just mentioned there is that psychological safety, which is just so crucial if you want to get the best ideas coming out of the room. And so obviously having having psychological safety so that people can feel comfortable to share them. And the other one, which is a phrase that I love to use in the book, which is like, be your problems therapist, which is like getting really, really clear on the actual problem that you're trying to solve is. 
And you talk about this concept of blowing up balloons and obviously putting your problem in the balloon, but you also touch on this idea of like having other balloons around it and just tackling one balloon at a time. Do you want to kind of touch on that concept? Yeah, I think sometimes when we think about what problem are we trying to solve, often we can either go down the wrong path and we can kind of try and, you know, we spend an hour in a brainstorm and you get to the end, you're like, oh, but hold on a second, that actually wasn't what we're trying to do. So a really simple way of thinking about that is thinking of any creative thing you're trying to solve as a primary problem. And then underneath that are a series of smaller problems. And you need to focus everyone's energy and attention and thought onto one idea at a time. So this concept of blowing up balloons is you think of what is a primary problem. You break it up into maybe two or three smaller problems and you just repose those problems as a question. Um, and it's a really simple way of taking something that's pretty complicated, like how do we solve this giant thing, this giant problem that we have that everyone's going to be overwhelmed by and just breaking it down into really smaller bite-sized chunks. And then you focus everyone's energy and thoughts and ideation at one time on one simple question. And the way that our brain works is that we like to answer questions. Like you said, the, 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 look at what we're doing right now. You ask a question, I answer it. I ask you a question, you answer it. And that's kind of how we think. So you need to almost like hack your brain by asking it a really simple question and then just follow where those answers go. I use a concept in the book called thought worms. Um, so kind of like follow where those thought worms go and just and just see it. And everyone's thought worms are so unique and so different. And that's the power and beauty and magic of creativity. A totally fresh way of looking at bringing out the best of our collective expertise. And and seriously, I, I honestly can't um, encourage people more to get hold of the book because there's lots of these kind of practical things that you bring to life around something which you said, like it can be quite mystical or abstract, but you really make it super practical. You touched on something there, which I, I think is deeply powerful, which is being able to frame something as a question so that we can put our collective effort behind answering that question. How important is it to get um, or make sure that we're asking the right questions so that we get to the best outcome? Like how important is that role of asking the right questions? Probably the most important thing you can do in creativity is, yeah. is understanding the question and kind of the, the first step in my um, process is be your problems therapist, as you said, and really understanding it from every single angle. And often that will take getting the opinions of people that, you know, different kind of people around the table and trying to spend almost as much time figuring out what the question is and what the problem is as you should actually coming up with a solution. Um, I think early on in the book, I had a, like a little pie chart of what a typical group ideation session was, which was it's normally 1% figuring out what the problem is and 99% group ideation. Who's got some ideas? And then people throwing things around and just, just going straight to that. Whereas really you should spend about one third of the time thinking through what the problem is, talking about it, discussing it, researching it, making sure everyone in the group understands it. About one third of the time coming up with ideas individually by yourself, no one else's opinion, just you and your own thoughts. Some of them might be shit. Some of them might be dirty water. Some of them might be uh, clear water. And then, and only then, about one third of the time, coming up with ideas collectively as a group. 
which is such a different model to what I typically see in meetings. Because look, the the typical excuse is that we're time poor, you know, we, we don't have time to give people this space, but you could utilize the space that you do have um, and the time that you do have in a different way to, to achieve a better outcome as a result of that. Um, I was having a conversation uh, with Dan Gregory um, and he was telling, you know, the importance of asking the right question. And he used the example of if you needed to get, you know, build a bridge to go from one side of the river to the other, one question you could ask is how do we build a better bridge? And he said, but a more helpful question could be how do we get to the other side? And based on the question you ask, maybe the bridge isn't the answer to get to the other side. And so I think just being able to frame the problem, understand the problem well enough to be able to frame the question that allows people to be creative is such a, a critical part of this creative process. Now, I know at the moment you're exploring and kind of and writing for your next book. And, you know, one of the big questions or problems people are trying to solve at the moment is what the hell does work look like outside of COVID when, you know, we've got people working from home, we've got people working in the office, we've got hybrid work, everything in between. This feels like a big creative problem that people are trying to solve right now. Um, what's been your experience with that? It is a huge creative problem that everyone's trying to solve. I think globally, I actually can't think, and I've been doing my research, I'm trying to not um, go straight to hyperboles, but this is probably the biggest um, global issue that's ever faced humanity at once in terms of in, in terms of our work and the way that we work we've never in our um certainly in the last couple of hundred years ever had a global event like this where everyone has been forced to shift their working habits over a period of one to two years and then as we start re-emerging from this figure out which of those habits can i actually incorporate into my life um and so there's this, what I'm trying to do at the moment is I'm traveling the world, speaking to people all over the world to try and kind of get everyone's different takes on how has life changed over the past two years and how have your priorities changed and how can you incorporate some of the good things, drop some of the shit things like the isolation and the mental health issues and homeschooling and pick up some of those good things, incorporate them into your life. So remote working and four-day work weeks and hybrid meetings. Um, so the question that I'm really trying to answer at the moment is where does all this end up? Like we're kind of like we're in this stage where everything got thrown up into the air. A couple of things are kind of like starting to land down on the ground again. But where does it end up and how can anyone, so any employee, any freelancer, actually take advantage of some of this research and some of this giant global experiment and shitstorm that we've been through over the past two, two years to take advantage of it for themselves. It's it's a huge one. I, I honestly think you're onto a really valuable conversation because my experience with people as I'm talking to clients I work with is is polarized, right? We've got some people who are like, we can only do our best work in the office. We can't build culture. We can't bring people together. We can't create vision when people, unless they're in the office. We've got other people who are throwing in their leases and going, we actually don't need an office space. And, you know, nobody should be working in an office. And then you've got people in the middle, they were like, no, no, three, two is the best, you know, approach to, to work. Or no, 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 it's like one, four. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Like everyone's kind of exploring all these options at the moment. Like what, in, in your conversations and observations, like what are you seeing as like big trends or things that you're observing at the moment? It's, it's fascinating because we've gone from a one size fits all um, world 
where the only way and the only option that we had to work was going to sit in an office five days a week from nine to five, Monday to Friday. That was for 99% of people, that was the only option that we had. And all of a sudden now we are having this huge smorgasbord of opportunities, as you said, that really depends on the size of your employer, who your employer is, um, this, the makeup of your workers, so where they're based, how old they are. Um, and we're starting to see just this like entire shift in the potential of what work could look like. And no one knows what the answer is. And everyone is adamant that I'm speaking to people and people are like, I've solved it. As you said, it's three and two. And someone for somebody that's three days in the office and two days at home, for someone else, it's three days at home and two days in the office. Um, and then there's employees at the same time who are just as confused as the employers because you go and work for somebody and someone says, we don't have an office, just work from home and come in once a quarter and let's all get together. And for some people, they love that. They think they love that. And then the reality of that kind of hits. So I think like the answer where it's kind of going to end up is that there is no, there is no one size fits all anymore. Um, but the, all of the research is starting to come out on the flexibility that's required. And if anything, it's actually just going to mean more conversations between employees and employers rather than being told what to do or having an expectation of what is you're meant to do. Um, so more conversation. And I think it will kind of mean flexible working for everybody means something different depending on who you are, what level you're at, what you're trying to do, what project you're working on, what your team is doing. So I actually don't think the answer is going to be a magical number. I think the answer is going to be a combination of all of these things, which is kind of scary for, for, for everyone because it means that you know, it, was, it was easy when you knew that you went to an office on Monday and you stopped going to the office on a Friday and then you started going again on the Monday. That was easy for everyone to understand. At the moment now, nothing is easy. It feels, look, it's it reminds me of like, uh, I can't remember when it was, when Google were like, we've reimagined our office space. So now everybody works in open plan and our executives work next to our employees. And, you know, this is the way, this is the future of work. And everyone was like, oh my gosh, everyone's building buildings and they're cutting out their office spaces. And and then Google comes out and like, oh, actually we, we kind of got that wrong. <laughs> like we didn't get that right. And we've got all these purpose-built facilities all over <laughs> the world where people are like, oh, right. Okay. So it doesn't work anymore. Okay. We, we actually need some office spaces. And so it, it does feel a bit like we look to different organizations to go, you tell us what we should be doing right now. And everyone's like, no, no, no. You know, remote working is the way of the future. And then you apply it. And then all of a sudden it, it doesn't work. It, it feels, it feels really complicated at the moment. So in the absence of like a really strong answer, what do you feel like is the best questions that organizations could be asking right now? What's the most What's the most helpful question we could at least be exploring in all of this? Yeah, and I must point out that I'm at the very start of writing and thinking about this book. So it's uh, I'm hoping to find an answer somewhere through there um, that is yeah. probably more firm than my current vagueness of, I don't know what the answer is, because I, I don't know. I'm going into this with an open mind. I'm trying to speak to many experts around the world who have thought about this long before COVID and we'll continue thinking about this. And that's a really fascinating part of writing a book, the ability to chat to all these people. Mm. Um, 
So, yeah, I think the questions that need to be asked, I think it's it's centering the employee at the at the start of at the, at the at the base of this. I think for too long we have centered the employer at the but you know so the employer says this is where my office is, this is what the hours are going to be, take it or leave it. And I actually think that shift where it's now up to the employee. And that's quite scary for a lot of employees because they're realizing, oh my God, okay, I love leaving work at three o'clock every day and going to pick up my kid from school and then coming on and working at night. And I now have the ability to actually say to my employer, as long as I get my work done, I'm, I'm, are you okay with this? So I actually think the question is around what do employees want? What do workers want? How can work best serve them? What's the work that they think that they should be doing best? So I, I think that that's to me is the biggest flip. It's kind of how can we empower workers to get their work done rather than employer, employers telling them this is how you should do it. That's that's huge for a couple of reasons. I mean, a few. the first thing that came to my mind was, oh my gosh, how do we avoid creating a huge sense of entitlement around employees dictating to organizations, this is how I want to have things to happen, which I actually think is the overcorrection of that, as I kind of say that out loud. Like we fear that maybe people will become entitled, but really what we're doing is just listening to our employee voice and helping that to inform our decision-making. But the two things that stood out to me was is one, in order to be able to have that kind of shift in being more employee centric, number one, employees need to know what they want. Um, and number two, employers need to be able to create avenues to listen, which I feel like those are two really huge, tricky problems to solve. Would you agree? Yeah, they're, they're, they're massive. Employees don't know what they want at the moment. They've been through a washing machine over the last two years yeah. and they're I think slowly starting to come out on the other side and they're like, I, I, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want. And I think what they don't want is to go back to just the way that things were. So that's, that's kind of like the starting frame that I'm kind of thinking about this. Um, it is a lot of responsibility to kind of say, fine, you tell us what you want. What do you want to do? And I, I kind of think that if anything, it's going to be more of a conversation than it ever was around um, and I think, you know, to, to your topic, therefore the communication between different levels of an organization need to be better than they've ever been. The ability for people to be able to talk about how they're feeling and, you know, this is not a way of employers just abdicating responsibility and saying to employees, well, you figure it out. That's not what I'm saying. It's more that I actually don't think that employees were ever part of the conversation in the past. They didn't even have a voice. And I think now they have at least not the final say, but a say in how they want to work. Oh, you're speaking my language. As a communication person, everything that I think, I have a phrase which is our biggest leadership problems can usually be traced back to a communication issue and can be solved through more effective communication. I, I genuinely believe that sometimes the, the answer to our most complex challenges is just honestly having a, a very meaningful and honest conversation with one another. And I would agree there's an element of we're making decisions for an organization at a leadership level in a room where we're trying to bring out the best ideas in a room rather than going, hey, how do we actually include people in this conversation? So if you're an employee right now that's listening, 
I mean, what are some of the things that you should be thinking about from an employee perspective about the future of work? Like as, and then we'll talk about the leaders after that. So employee of an organization, what should they be thinking through right now? Yeah, I think everyone should be thinking through how they can best perform the work that they want to and need to be able to perform given all of the options available to them. So the options in the past were go to the office five days a week. Now the option at the extreme end of that is work from home five days a week. Um, and it's thinking through, well, if I am going to work from home, not five days a week, because I don't think that's a healthy long-term solution either. Um, but what is the, what's the reasoning behind me doing this? Is it because I want to get more work done free from distractions? Is it because I want to be closer to my daughter to pick her up from school? Is it because I actually find that team meetings are more effective on Zoom than they are in person? Kind of think through the, the, the reason behind why you do certain work and then work backwards from there and figure out, okay, in my job, I actually think I, I want to be more creative. So I want a day a week where I have no meetings and I can just think through big strategy documents or big problem solving uh, ideas. Therefore, I want to incorporate into my work at least one day a week where I work from home and I don't have any meetings. And so I think everyone needs to start asking themselves those questions and kind of almost like designing your own uh, ideal day or ideal week instead of having someone else tell you that this is how you need to work and this is what you need to be doing. So I think that's the first thing that I'll ask, I'll, I'll ask anyone listening to this is to actually take a little step back and kind of think about the why behind what you're doing and the what you need to do um, productivity-wise. Uh, one of the, I've got a friend who often says, um, you know, do the work to have an opinion, um, which, which I think if you're going to be invited into a conversation uh, about something, then it's worthwhile having done the work, whatever that looks like, whether it's personal reflection, whether it's research, whatever that is, to show up with an informed opinion. Um, and some of this self-reflective practice by asking, okay, well, what what role does the office play for me as an employee? What role does Zoom play? What role does home play? And how do I best, How what would it look like if I could have my ideal week for that? So that when you actually are invited into the conversation, you've got something of value to contribute to it. So let's flip the perspective. And if you're a leader in an organization and you're trying to engage people in a conversation, I mean, what are, is it just the inverse of that? The questions you'd be asking, like what are some of the things that you should be kind of centering that conversation around? I think one of the most important things is to really understand that every leader is also uh, should ask themselves firstly the same questions that all of the employees are asking. Um, I always, you know, sometimes I kind of think that we put leaders and C-suite and CEOs on this different pedestal as though they're also not human with the same desires and thoughts and fallibilities as everyone else. So I think leaders also should firstly be asking themselves personally, what do I need to do in order to best serve my team or in order to best do what I need to do? Um, I think that leaders need to, it comes back to what you said around communication, need to facilitate and be able to open a honest conversation with their staff and with the company, because the leaders really are kind of the the go between between the corporation and between the people working for the corporation. Um, so they need to be able to um, one facilitate the conversation, but two also, I think, understand that there's so many unknowns at the moment, and that's okay. So there's going to be mistakes. So it's okay to kind of go out there and say, right, everyone, we think that you should work from home three days a week. Test it out 
for three months or six months. Do some research on it. You know, ask people how they're feeling. Get some anonymous feedback from people. And then if it's not right, just change it. It's okay to change it. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to <laughs> just because you went out there and gave a press release and said we're moving to a four-day work week and all of a sudden productivity falls off a cliff and the business almost goes under. It's okay to then go back to a five-day work week and figure out other ways of trying to be more flexible. I think that's really fascinating. And there's this real, so far I've been researching this um, this book on the future of work. This whole concept of four-day work weeks and kind of what it means is really fascinating. And I've spoken to a bunch of different companies about it and almost every company has now got me doing research on them because they want to experiment with it. And so I'm now doing some live research on what the four-day work week looks like in a bunch of different companies of different sides, international companies, Australian companies, and we're doing research. We're doing you know surveys at the start every month and reassessing at the end of three months so that there's this kind of um, some kind of empirical data that can add to the mountains of other research that's out there. Um, and that's quite fascinating. I just think everyone should realise this is a really hard fun, exciting time in our history. Um, and we're going to make mistakes as we go through it. And that's okay. It feels really messy. And I heard someone say, you know, when everything's broken, it's a really good time to break some more things. And, you know, part of those is like, what are some of the things that we've been embedded into our cultures within businesses for so long? That's like, if everything goes out the window, now's the perf perfect time to try it and fail it because everything else around it's also failing too. Um, the four day work I've got, I mean, I, I could talk to you all day about the four day work week. I've, I implemented that for myself at the end of last year because I was doing an interview for my book and I, someone said to me, we've got a really high performance culture. And in the next sentence, she said, we, we work a four day work week. And I was so trying to re reconcile those two concepts. And I got off the phone and I, I said to my wife, I was like, oh, I would love to work at an organization like that where they do a four-day work week. And she looked at me and she's like, you're an idiot. You work for yourself. Um, just do a four-day work week. So I blocked out my calendar and I was really intentional around that. Um, one of the things that I'm kind of bringing this back to, which is another concept in your book that you touch on, is this idea of fitting your own mask first. And so much of what we're talking about here is like before you get into that conversation, that celebration conversation, like do your own thinking first rather than just bringing everyone together and trying to get ideas from the room. Do you want to just really succinctly touch on that fit your own mask first concept? I think it generally kind of comes down to personal responsibility and to kind of figuring out if one of the things that you said, if you're going to go into a conversation with somebody, do the research beforehand. So in killer thinking, I talk about it in terms of creativity that creativity is a it's a process that eventually turns to group ideation and coming up with ideas together and throwing ideas off each other but at the start it's actually quite a first process and so this hot this concept of fitting your own mask first kind of comes from airline safety videos whenever you get on a plane and they say you know before you're going to fit the mask of a, a child with you you need to put your own mask on first before you can fit theirs which kind of goes a bit counterintuitive to sometimes how we think we should help other people. We think we should help them first, then help ourselves. So when it comes to creativity, we really need to fit our own mask first to sit down and to think of ideas, to spend time by ourselves, to get bored, to um, just get inside our own heads, really understand a problem, figure out some of the solutions. And then, and only then, should we then go to other people and say, hey, here's some thought starters that I had, what did you have? And if they've also fitted their own mask first, 
they all come to the table with their own ideas. And that is where, you know, you, you start getting really great creative responses because you're not reliant on someone else's kind of um, ideas as a starting point. You've actually thought about it first. Yeah, super helpful. Um, now, I'm mindful of our time. Th- this has been such a helpful conversation, Tim, and just in the journey that we've taken it on from this idea of, you know, creativity is something that can be worked and, and built like a muscle and every person can contribute to the conversation. So getting the right people in the room, making sure that we facilitate it in a way that brings out the best in the room by, you know, actually not just relying on an outdated way of kind of bringing ideas out, but thinking it through, giving people space to reflect on it and then, I guess, exploring through your your process to bring those ideas to the surface. And I, I, I love that how that that process can be applied to the future of work conversation. Hey, are we asking the right questions? Are we trying to solve the right problems right now? Are we giving people space to ask, ask what they want and how they can contribute to, contribute to that to the conversation? So I really love that kind of um, progression that we've gone on this journey. If, if you had kind of like, I don't know, maybe 30 or 60 seconds to kind of, if I gave you a soapbox to stand on to talk to leaders and organizations right now, what's some of the big things, the most pressing thing that you'd want to say to them right now? I think the most important thing is for leaders and organizations to create a space where everyone in a team can be creative. I think that there's so many myths around creativity. There is so many lies and so many um, just things that we believe creativity is and isn't. And it's up to every leader to not only be creative, but to really bring out that creativity in every single person in their team. And the way you do that is you create a psychologically safe environment. You give people the tools and the, the processes to be creative. And you really just instilling every single person a mindset that everyone is creative, no matter where you come from in the organization. And honestly, if, if, if someone is looking for that toolkit, um, then your book, Killer Thinking, How to Turn Good Ideas into Brilliant Ones is, is a, a, an epic place to start for them. Um, read, it, read it yourself if you're a leader, get the tools, bring them to your team, contribute it to them and help other people um, unleash the, the, the power of them because it's... Uh, You've done a really fantastic job at taking something which can feel so mystical at times to make it really practical for people. And so um, congrats again on the book. Uh, for people who want to get in touch with you and, and obviously outside of just buying your book, also there's um, Cult Status, which is out as well, your previous book. Um, and I can't wait to read your next book. What's the best way for people to connect with you? The simplest way is just go to my website, which is timduggan.com.au. That's T-I-M-D-U-G-G-A-N. Amazing. Hey, thank you so much for your time, Tim. I'm, I'm so um, excited to follow along in this journey as you're writing the new book. I think it's going to be a really helpful book for a lot of people um, and excited to just learn what you're learning as you're going on this journey and touching on something which is actually really quite a huge global topic of conversation right now. So I wish you all the luck with it and uh, would encourage people to get in touch with you in any way they can. But thanks for, so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Shane. I had a really great chat with another clever person. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.